My guest today is Anthony Ball, someone I've known for ooh, a quarter century, I think. Gosh, that makes us sound very old, doesn't it, Anthony? But of course we're not. Um, Anthony is probably the leading private equity player in South Africa, has been since the late 1990s, and he's now also working in Europe. And he's particularly interesting to me because he's a very rare breed, which is a really nice person who is also a money bags or a private equity person. Um, so, Anthony, welcome and uh, nice to talk to you. Thank you, Richard. Anthony, what do you think makes for a successful private equity person or a successful venture capitalist? What, what are the key characteristics or anatomy of that sort of person? Well, first of all, Richard, thank you very much for those kind words. It is about 25 years ago, and it seems like eons ago. I don't feel like we are any older, unless you look at pictures of ourselves. You'll find that we are. <laughs> that's why we're doing <laughs> audio. <laughs> that, 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 that's why we're doing audio, I guess. And uh, we really enjoyed our time working together and learned an awful lot. Um, one of the things that Richard may tell you is I'm not a good advice taker, so a lot of the good advice he's given me I haven't taken. <laughs> Most of that's to my, my own detriment. Um, I think that a, a venture, venture capital and private equity people are in some senses quite different. And I'll, I'll talk VC as the Americans talk VC, meaning early stage. I know in UK we often lump them all together. But VC animals and PE animals are, are often quite difficult. So let me talk rather about the animals that I know, which are the private equity ones. Okay. And um, I think that the private equity people, um, to, to make them really work, I feel, uh, requires the following. I think first off, what is often underestimated is just the power of the team. So it's very rare that you find one person that can do all the stuff on their own. And certainly a lesson for me in the, the different environments that I've, I've done my work in, I find myself much less effective when I'm on my own than when I'm in a team. So I think the, the whole aspect of the team, how it works, the different attributes, um, how you make that work um, is, uh, is quite a tough job. But I think getting it right um, is, is a very, very important part of what makes a, a, any particular private equity individual effective. And Richard, you and I have been through times at Brace where I often felt that, uh, I told people that the place nearly blew up three times. So it, it just because of the personalities. So certainly we, we didn't always get it right, but I feel we got it right in the end. And um, I think, I suppose what I'm saying here is that an awful lot of time, energy and um, intellectual energy and um, needs to go into trying to make that team thing work. So I think the team is very important. The, the individuals in that team, I think the people that do it best uh, are people that bring together a few, a few strands of... Uh, capability and competence that are very important. The one, obviously, is the person's got to be clever. It, it is an environment where you, you've got lots of things coming at you, lots of um, competing uh, pieces of information that don't always point in the same direction, um, and, and you've got to try and make sense of So I think just intellectual horsepower is, is quite an important feature. You'll find that most of the people that do this I hope this doesn't sound wrong, but I think that it tends to be uh, quite intelligent people. So I think uh, that's something that we've focused on in our hiring always has been to try and find clever people. The other, other part that, that comes with that, and it doesn't always come naturally, is um, the human dimension of being emotionally intelligent, a bit of a catch word, but just being smart around people and trying to win with people, trying to get people to do stuff, trying to get people on side. The people that's 
successful private equity people uh, generally have a way of doing that. And it, it, it normally combines a bit of force of personality, but also with some humanity about understanding what people, what how people work, and and what makes them tick. So I think that's that's another another um, piece piece of the puzzle that that I, th I think is very important. Um, and then the last piece I'll, I'll talk to you, and it, it becomes more meaningful to me and more obvious to me the older I get, is that it's, I don't know what the right English word is, but it's, it's some kind of shrewdness or cunning that, um, that is needed. Now, cunning can sound pejorative, but in actual fact, uh, in the world of investing, um, having the right amount of cunning is an important thing. Mm. Invariably, what one's trying to do here is to, is to win. And you're wanting to you're wanting to do to do to do better, and you're wanting to take um, uh, advantage of the situations that you find yourselves in. So there's a trade that I call cunning, um, that I always look for in the people that I work with. Um, so you add those things together, I think you've you've got you've got got something to work with. You haven't mentioned something that um, many people think is quite important, and that is. A methodology or a set of principles or a specialization in a particular area um, you've talked about the attributes of the people and I, I think it's it's very hard for me to disagree with anything that you said there but doesn't that leave out the sort of the um, beef as it were the, the the stuff which determines how you select companies that are going to increase in value and how you help them do that yeah, no, look, I think that's important. Um, I, I suppose I'd, I'd put it somewhere in that cunning bucket. But um, what I'd also say, though, that <laughs> I would hazard a bet that most of the successful private equity firms and people are probably deal people first and investment people second. That's been an observation I'd make. And that is that um, if, you, if, you, if one spends time with, with serious investors, they're generally public market people, yeah. there's an awful lot that goes into figuring out investment themes and sectors and um, uh, what kind of industries have tailwinds, what kind of industries have headwinds. My experience with private equity people, it normally starts the other way. You find a deal and you kind of bash it into shape, leverage it, make a few changes. And the, the investment themes are often quite secondary to that, So, which is fine. But um, I, I, I'm, I'm not convinced that you have to be a super shrewd investor to win in the private equity game. Um, in fact, as I say, a lot of these people are, um, are with some humility, would say uh, you know, second-tier investors, but just firstly uh, smart, cunning people that are able to take advantage of situations. And sometimes you know, buying a business cheap, putting the right amount of leverage in, leveraging in, leverage into it. Um, finding um, someone that's happy to pay more than it's worth when you sell it, uh, and those sorts of trades. As far as methodology is concerned, I, th I think a lot of firms will um, will pump up, you know, their methodology and why it's different. But fundamentally, it's it, it's 101 stuff. You know, it's DCF models, it's uh, <laughs> it's analytical tools, um, it, it's it's really all the stuff that you know business schools produce uh, that comes out, and it's then people. And with those attributes that actually they use those tools to, to advantage. When you think about the companies that you have invested in or the deals that you've done, perhaps I should say, um, which have been most successful and which have made the most money for yourself and for other investors who are limited partners, do you think that the major theme of that success 
is to do with the business characteristics, the market, the uh, market position, the way that the company approaches its customers and so forth, and the way it runs itself to make either fantastic products or to make them very, very um, cheaply. Do you think that that's more important or less important than the personal characteristics and creativity of the people who are running the company? How do you divide the, the importance of those two components, Anthony? Uh, very interesting point, Richard. Uh, and in fact, it's probably both of those things. Personal disposition-wise, I end up being very intrigued by, by the latter, and that is the exceptional uh, leader, entrepreneur, um, that's built something that's really special and has some unique insights and ability to, uh, to mobilize resources, bring people along, um, do new things. That would be, I guess, your ultimate source of value. And that's the sort, those are the sorts of ones that I've enjoyed the most and probably done best at. But in another way of looking at this is to have a look at the whole uh, private equity value chain, which starts from buying, structuring, working with a portfolio company and exiting. And you may find that the most money actually gets made not even from that middle bit. It might be uh, that you've lucked out and found something that's just extraordinarily cheap and you've got to be a real chump not to make a lot of money out of it. That can also happen. Or you may find um, the next bit is it's how you structure it. You came up with a really clever structuring tool um, that took all the risk away and provided only the upside. And uh, and again, you've, you you know you can have uh, inferior outcomes in terms of your the entrepreneur that you work with or the team that you work with. Or it may be that you just, again, get very lucky that somebody really needs to buy this asset and they're happy to pay a crazy price for it. But I think your most reliable way of consistently making money, in my view, is to um, is where you end up working with an extraordinary leader that's got you know insight and vision and ability to take people along and make make big and bold things happen. Now it's very interesting, Anthony, that you 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 used the phrase extraordinary leader you, you, or exceptional leader. You used the phrase earlier, and is there a sort of contradiction? Or is there, is there an explanation for why you said leader and not team in that case, or leader, not leaders? And when we were talking about the making private equity work for the private equity firm, you adopted the opposite position of saying it's the power of the team rather than saying it's an exceptional individual. Now, that may be humility on your part, uh, undeserved humility, perhaps, but... Do you think there's a contradiction there or do you think that, there's, that there is something in the nature of the company that you buy, buy, which is different from the nature of the private equity firm which is managing the whole process? I think you're right in the sense that and you asked me in the beginning about what makes a special private equity person um, professional. Um, I, I was just wanting to uh, put that person in the context of of a team. So you'd want, yes, in that team to have a, a leader that leads and 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 um, envisions and takes takes the company. You, you, you absolutely need that. Uh, so I didn't want to downplay the role of a leader in that context either, but if you're just talking about the others in that team, I, I think the team the team dynamics important. And, uh, 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 industrial commercial business um, is, is similar in some respects, but where it's different is in the private equity businesses, you, you've, you've got a set of partners, all of whom go out and 
it's almost like a um, what what you described. It's, it's almost like a it is a bit like a partnership where you've got partners that actually run these investments for you. When you're in a, a typical industrial commercial environment, it's the typical role of a CEO and then functional heads or business unit heads. It's somewhat different, but um, where 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 it where, where it becomes, I think, irrelevant to your question is um, a great leader will build a powerful team, always. It's, it's, um, they understand the power of people. They're able to harness people. They're able to you know, get the very best out of their people. That has been my experience. The very best leaders are extraordinarily good at that. That's one of the defining things that I think make, that makes them special. Have you ever been in that's, – that's a great answer. Have you ever been in a position, Anthony, where – maybe two or three years, maybe longer or maybe shorter, into making a particular, doing a particular deal, you discover that you don't have faith anymore in the people who are running the company. Uh, you know, they may be very good functionally, they may, may be really nice people, they may be highly intelligent people, but somehow it doesn't seem to come together. Have you ever been in that position and what, what have you done about it? All too often, Richard. I'm afraid. I think that one of them. It's <laughs> what, what can happen. I mean, it happens often. I think that for a few reasons. One is a person's life circumstances can change, and mm-hmm. I, I have a lot of examples of where people have been going along fine, but they've had a, a, a changed life circumstance, which has just made them behave differently. It may be that the business environment changes, and those things that were relevant to that environment are now no longer relevant. What may be that someone just made a few mistakes. And and it may even be that you, as someone that's representing the owners, end up losing confidence and for some reason, for one reason or another. So it does happen quite often. What what we found is um, that, uh, that you need to make changes um, and we try to make those changes thoughtfully and quickly. And um, it, I, I recall a, a lesson I learned when I, when I started out and we... Uh, Terry, we had a, a group of senior business people around the lunch table, and I remember asking the question. I said, "What is your um, leave us just just one enduring lesson? What is it?" And to a person, they all said the same thing. They, they ran out of confidence in someone running the business, and they took too long to make the change. Yeah. And they found every time they did make the change, that all the things that they were worried about—the personal hurts, uh, the the fracturing of um, commercial relationships the loss of corporate memory, all of those things were actually dwarfed by the new energy that came in. So that's something that we've tried to follow is to, as I often say to my team, is we don't behave like Clint Eastwood, yeah? Don't go and shoot everyone's head off before you've thought about it. But if you've resolved that this is wrong, is make the change and take the pain and move on. And it's it's, it's a lesson I'm pleased I, I, I learned quite early on in life. So essentially, it's bringing in someone new to run the company from outside the company yeah. or sometimes yeah. from inside the company? Um, it, it's normally been outside. Yeah. It's normally been outside. And what, what do you recommend doing with the people who, in a sense, have not been able to make it work? Do you think, it, uh, in general, is it's a good idea to keep them because of all their experience and their functional skills? Or do you think it's better if they leave? I think the best is to cut them loose. Um, you know, I think what one always tries to do is to work very hard to have a... Um, as, as amicable an outcome as you can. And, and, and there's always a lot of emotion, a lot of heat around these things, so it's, it can be quite tough to do that. But you, you also got to convince yourself of this, and that is if the person is wrong, um, 
it, it's 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 so wrong for all those people around them, and it's so wrong for that person because they're going to end up now, you know, messing up time and time again, have their self confidence eroded, um, lose economic um, opportunity. So the best you can actually do is get the person out. So I think the conversations, once you've got through the heat of the motion, I find more often than not we end up in a reasonably comfortable place afterwards, and you find the person does get cut loose, close close the ties, but you've got access to the person if you you know, you need some corporate memory or you need to um, ask a question, you've always got access to them afterwards. And I, and I would feel that of of those changes that have been made, I would feel that a good 80% of them, we've still at a place where we can have a cup of coffee or lunch with that person once you know, the emotions out of the situation. That's something to work, one should work quite hard to try and achieve, I feel. Okay, so you recommend surgery, basically. The surgeon yep. has yep. to go in with a knife um, and, uh, you know, has to behave clinically. Um, so. Yeah, okay, yeah. very good. Um, could you tell me what you think that you've learned that's most important, the one or two or three things that are most important about business, about about private equity or about life generally, actually, if you want to... Um, to, to go that far in the last five or ten years I mean one of the great things I think about living and about working in business of any sort is that you learn things and you learn things you learn sometimes learn that your assumptions are completely wrong uh, or that you, you find a different way of behaving which is which is really um, very refreshing and which seems to work extremely well what would you say you've learned in the last five or ten years Anthony that that you think is very important I think, okay, so we all bring our own um, stuff to these sorts of conversations. And for me, a um, very big one has been um, this, this, this very human thing of people remaining fundamentally what they are. So when, once you bait, so let's say once you get through your teen years, you, you end up remaining fundamentally the same person. So the things that scare you or excite you or make you nervous uh, – and your stress behavior remains the same. So you, you, uh, I remember having this, this brief chat with you once. So it, it would get to, um, don't ask Donald Trump to be anything other than a New York property. Yeah, like, I remember that. that. I, I yeah, knew yeah, that was yeah, coming yeah. because so, that, yeah, that, that so, thought really so, struck and, me. Yeah. And, 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 and don't ask your prime minister to be anything other than what he is. That's what he is, you know, or Jacob Zuma to be anything other than what Jacob Zuma is. Yeah. And all of that stuff is, is quite based in how you, in how and how you are. So, uh, I, I find that it's very important to try and figure that stuff out uh, in the partners that you have, in the uh, in the CEOs that are run your companies, the people you're relying on. Is to try and figure that stuff out, and uh, and not be surprised about it, and and you know recognize it when it rears its head, and know when you um, when you can use the per- person a certain way, and when you can't. So, I certainly find that's a, a massive lesson for me, and I try uh, all the time to. Um, go to the ends of the earth to discover that stuff. Through but what do you do? I mean, I think the Trump case is a very good example. I think you're absolutely right. You know, he wrote, or, or at least was ghosted for him, a book called The Art of the Deal. And, and he views everything as a transaction, everything as a deal. And he, yeah, tr- he yeah. tries to buy low and sell high, <laughs> etc. But yeah, what do you do yeah. in a situation where that person becomes President of the United States, where it's a totally inappropriate um, way of behaving, but just the wrong person in the wrong job. I mean, 
how do you do how do you deal with that i mean either in your own experience obviously it's different but but you know how does how 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 should the gop the republican party or how should the americans deal with something like that i won't go there because I, it's too complicated for me I, I i'm just happy to think about this at an organizational level <laughs> okay. investing there is not a democracy <laughs> it's That's too, able to, too able difficult to take, I'm fascinated by this. Stuff. That's to me an enduring lesson, uh, and I, I, another enduring lesson for me. And this, I, I, people can come from different philosophical points on this thing. If I talk to, for example, my friends in the asset management world, all the kids that were top of the class in finance, and they sit behind their desks and their laptops, and they don't engage with the world, they engage with numbers and stuff they read. And there's almost a um, a belief that with an investment, you don't have to do anything. The truth will out. So if there's value there, don't have to make it happen, chase it out. It'll, on its own, something, it'll reveal itself. And you don't believe First, that that's true? I don't believe that. I yeah. believe the agency of people is all that matters. Yeah. It's through the agency of people that you actually, that, that you know, good and bad things happen. So um, I've, uh, I'm a deep believer in this thing about people, people and teams of people and extraordinary people and kind of get them you know, organized in the right way to do to do exceptional things. And for me, one of the big highs I get from the work that I do is um, is working with these kind of people as you know, people in my team or people, my partners or people um, that run companies where there's some extraordinary um, human trait in there that when it expresses itself, it does great things. Does that mean that you think that analysis is for the birds and actually it's all a matter of intuition? No, no, not at all. No, no, no. I think that I think I think analysis really matters because you know those those are the facts, and um, they've got to be your guiding principles. You you, you can't you can't change the laws of gravity, but uh, if you were to um, but but where it matters is uh, let's say you do an analysis of a company and you say goodness it's got this unit that's greatly undervalued, and um, analysis will get you there, but but. The outcome is extract it for your investors and make money out of it. That's human, and that that's that's the part that um, that is 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 so difficult. Is, is and a that's difficult the part, part which is it, which yeah. is both more difficult and also more variable in terms of one person will sort it out and and someone else just won't be able to do that. Exactly, exactly. I, I've I've got a um, one of the entrepreneurs that I admire the most that I've worked with over the years. He's an um, extraordinary, extraordinary entrepreneur um, that's actually had a lot of – he can operate on the streets and in the boardroom, very careful guy. And he's got this thing that he keeps on telling people is that um, opportunity crosses goes, – goes across everyone's radar screen. And it goes across every clever person's radar screen. Um, yet it's, it's few that are able to – Recognize it, seize it, and make it their own. Um, and 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 he's absolutely right. And that's that reinforces my view about the agency of people. You can have brilliant people that do all analysis, and you can have someone's not quite as smart, but has got the instincts and the shrewdness and the cunning. And that same opportunity can go past and guess who's going to get it and make it their own. Yeah. It's the person that's got the smarts and the yeah. cunning that will actually get there. I think that's a great metaphor that the opportunity goes across everyone's. Uh, radar screen yeah. and few people recognize it and but that's one Definitely. of the things that I, I have learned in the last in the last five or ten years is is actually the ability to 
see something that's an opportunity where everyone else misses it. I mean, it's it's a uh, it's a it's a really it's it's a really really uh, interesting characteristic, and it's it's not a matter of necessarily high intellectual power. It's an it's, it can be a sudden insight or a realization, uh, imagination. It's very interesting. Anthony, we've let me got throw to... that back at you. Sorry, I'll throw it back at you. What is what is the biggest lesson you've learned in the last five years? I think one of the, one of the problems that I have had in my life is <laughs> I've always wanted to control things, and I think you and I had some disagreements sometimes because you were meant to be running a company and I was a non-executive director, and I was, <laughs> you said that you sometimes didn't listen to what I said. Well, that's quite appropriate, but because it was your it was your judgment that ultimately had to carry the, carry the responsibility in the can. So I think one of the things that I've learned to do in the last uh, few years, or at least hope, hope I've done, is to treat life more as an adventure than as something which needs controlling, because controlling is not much fun. I mean, you can control things and be very effective if you're someone like Lenin or uh, Stalin or even someone like Mao or Hitler. But but actually, it's jolly hard work, and it's not much fun, and it's not much fun for the people around you. It's much better to treat life as an adventure, I think. And that also fits very much with the opportunity going across everyone's radar screen, that, that actually the key thing is to spot where, you know, the next adventure can come completely randomly, completely discontinuously from previous experience or previous contacts. And I think that's, that's exciting because it, it keeps, you know, it keeps the curiosity going and it keeps the mind going and it, it's fun. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a game. So that's, that's my little contribution. Anthony, we've, we've only got about three minutes left. So I'd, I'd just like to close by asking you about South Africa. I know that you feel very deeply about your native country. I know that you are, you know, very interested in the in, in the drama which is playing out and in the success or otherwise of the country. Are you, are you optimistic about that? And do you think that the country is on track? It went through a, an enormous transition, obviously, in 1994 from a, from a really nasty nationalist uh, government and it, it, you know we had Mandela, we had democracy come in and all the rest of it. Do you think that South Africa is basically on the right road or not? Uh, it's, it's, you're right, thank you, Richard. I feel very privileged to be part of this fascinating place and all it has to offer. And it's, it's, uh, I often say to people, as a South African, you on a, a roller coaster of emotion, of pride, joy, and despair. And, um, and you can have all of those things happen to you in the same day based on you know what you're seeing and what what you're talking to. I have to say, if you if you to do a, a rational analysis of the South African situation, you would include things like uh, ballooning debt. Um, this is called the, the fiscal position of South Africa is very poor and very weak. The economic growth rate anemic. Um, the, the politics toxic. Um, Crime and corruption, you know, at at, at very serious levels. Um, you've got um, a, a government that is is, is anti-business. I, I think a lot of governments are, particularly if there are any leftist tendencies, they don't really like like business. But we've got one that doesn't really like business, and we've got, we've got a whole lot of stuff that's very complicated and and where the indicators are pointing downwards rather than upwards. So I think if you take a rational 
analysis of South Africa, you've got to say, to answer your question, no, we're not on the right path. So, so we, we agonise over that a lot, and what sort of keeps you here and motivated is hope, is, is a kind of belief and a hope, and a um, um, that um, that things can turn. But at the moment, uh, things are looking pretty rough all around in South Africa. And can you see any escape routes? I mean, can you see a scenario in which sooner or later uh, you do get a government which is not anti-business? You do get the problem of. Uh, toxic politics and crime and corruption and the weak fiscal position and the poor economic growth sorted out. Can you, can, you know, can you see, um, can you see uh, the sunlit uplands <laughs> despite the dire position? Well, I, I suppose that the sunlit uplands for me is probably just a bit more of a, a realistic lower bar expectation. So it would be one where we can get the economy to grow at about 3%. Um, where um, we can reduce the levels of crime and corruption, where we can reduce some of the dysfunctionality in the politics. And and that South Africa, when I say muddles along, it kind of muddles along a bit better than we are at the moment. And in that context, you know, one can have a laugh in a business and 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 and, um, and, and make some contribution to, to what happens. I, I, I don't have a belief that it can be sundered uplands. If you have a look at the National Development Plan, which I think it was drawn up about five or seven, eight years ago, and and it, it was a very rational plan that basically says, uh, if you can grow this economy at five point six percent per annum for twenty years, you end up becoming a middle-income country where unemployment goes from twenty-five percent to ten. Um, that was something that I genuinely believed was possible, and we had all the elements for it. But we we veered so far off that course. We haven't had a single year where we've had five. 5.6% growth since then. I would hazard a bet that it's been probably one one and a half percent average over that period of time. So I think that that, that opportunity has been lost. Um, and so then you get into you know what is possible. Yeah, given all these problems and complexities, it, it's 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 a low growth rate and um, not as good an outcome. But it's one that you know, I'm happy to be part of, happy to live in. As my kids keep on reminding me, with all of our challenges here, some of these challenges are common to most countries in the world. We just have a more extreme case of it here. And what that, and what's real about that is when you interface with that, you can help make a difference, try and do things, try and get involved, and try and, try and improve matters in, a, I think, in a more significant way than one could in many other countries. So that's one of the things that keeps us here, and keeps us uh, motivated to try and do what we can to make a difference. Well, I hope, I hope, that, um, I hope that it does keep people there. I mean, the, the danger, of course, is that people like you then decide to, to seek fortune and change elsewhere rather than in the country that you know and love. So let's hope that that doesn't happen. Yeah. I hate to end on a slightly downbeat note, but, but thank you very much indeed for being very frank with us. I know that you need to go now and we try and keep our... I try and keep my podcast to 30 minutes. We've done 32 minutes and 47 seconds. And every second has been a great pleasure, Anthony. So thank you very much indeed for coming on and talking. And I hope to see you before too long. We don't normally get to see people very easily these days. But, but anyway, that would be a great pleasure when it's possible. Thank you, Richard. Delighted to talk to you. Thank you so much. My All pleasure. Bye-bye now, Anthony. Bye-bye. Thank you.